invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn to the, the book of Acts, chapter 1 of Acts. It's on page 909 in one of these pew Bibles. I'll read verses 1 through 11. This is about the ascension of Jesus uh, into heaven. Hear God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So ends the reading of God's holy word. What would a CPA and a football team and an astronaut and a mountain climber all have in common? If they were not prepared, they would fail. If a mountain climber did not know how to repel that person would fail. If an astronaut did not know how to function in a weightless environment, if a CPA did not know the tax code, if a football team could not block the zone blitz, they would all fail. Preparation, you have to be well prepared to be successful. If you're a believer here in Christ this morning, if you're one of his followers, then I know why you were born. I know your purpose. You know, sometimes people have uh, traumatic experiences, an illness, car wreck, and they survive and they say, God must have a purpose for me. He's left me here for a reason. And I agree, he does have a purpose for you. And he did have a purpose for you before your accident. You were just awakened through the accident to know it. Here is God's purpose for all of his followers, to be ambassadors for his kingdom, to be his royal representatives, to be witnesses in this world for Christ. That's why we exist. So the question we have to come back to frequently is not whether we are ambassadors for Christ, but what kind of ambassadors we are. If you look at your life right now, you may look at it and say, well, I'm not, I'm not a very good ambassador. Well, if that's the case, we might want to go back to your training. Perhaps you were never adequately prepared. And that's what we'll be looking at for the next few moments. 
Before we look at a few of the opening verses of Acts, let me give you some observations about the author. The author was Luke. Luke was a native of the ancient city of Antioch. By profession, he was a doctor. He was a physician. And he had become a disciple of the apostle Paul. And later, he followed Paul until Paul was martyred. Luke was highly educated. And for his day, he was highly cultured. He understood the world. We know this because his particular use of the Greek language in his writing shows a very culture, a very well-educated form of Greek. And we gain assurance from Luke about his method in the opening verses that we read. He says that he's undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses He had drawn his material to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts from eyewitnesses who were there. He was very painstaking in that. So he's saying that he's a a consummate historian. Uh, He says he had investigated everything from the beginning. Toward what end? It says in verse 4 that you may have certainty. He wants them to be certain about what he had done. That's in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. Listen, if you and I are going to be persecuted and even die for something, you better know that it's true, that you have certainty. If we're going to be ambassadors and you want to give witness to that in this day, you better know that it's true, 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 and not have major doubts about what you are saying you believe. We need the testimony and writings of someone who has investigated thoroughly because no one of us saw Jesus crucified. None of us saw him raised from the dead. None of us saw witnesses like the raising of Lazarus from the dead or the feeding of the multitude. We are totally dependent on eyewitness accounts and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And so we want precise truth. And Luke employed very detailed methods to give us the accurate rendering of actual events. So we not only have confidence in his method, we also gain assurance from his message. He wrote two volumes. Luke wrote most of the New Testament, if you were to lay out page by page. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke, and then this volume is the second, and it's the book of Acts. Scrolls in those days could only be 36 feet long, however long that is, across here. So he had so much to write, it had to be in two volumes, in two separate scrolls. And so he summarizes his message in Acts chapter 1 about the first volume in the first book. He's talking about the Gospel of Luke. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. So he's referencing that now as he starts this account in the book of Acts. Now, names of the books of the Bible were added later. They are not inspired. The chapters and verses were added much later. They are not inspired. They just made it easier to read. This is called the Acts of the Apostles. Many people project there could be other names to this book that also would be accurate. It could be called the Acts of the Early Church, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I like what Derek Thomas called it. It's a little long, but he said, The acts of the resurrected Christ executed through the power of the Holy Spirit through the agency of his church. That would take a whole page, though, for the title. 
But the point is, in the book of Acts, Jesus is still at work. Does that sound like science fiction? Jesus is still at work. You realize that? No other religion makes that claim. Mormons cannot claim that their founder, Joseph Smith, is still at work in the world. Mormons do not claim that the prophet Muhammad is still at work in the world today. The Bible says Jesus is still at work now in the world. And he uses ambassadors like you and me and all those who claim to trust him. Well, let's take a few moments and look at the passage. And that is, what does it mean to be successful in mission if we're to be ambassadors? First is, it depends on, successful mission depends on our education and training. We see that in verses 1 to 5. Now, these men had been with Jesus the better part of three years, at least two years. We think he may have been a year into his public ministry before he called among his disciples the 12 disciples to follow him more closely. But they might have been listening to him for a year before that. So for the better part of three years... They have been with him, and during almost all of that time, even still up to this, they are confused and and even clueless at times as to what Jesus is talking about. It's as though they have veils or cataracts over their eyes. Often they just did not get it. And so successful mission depends on education. Now, some of you are not going to know what I'm getting ready to say, but it's right here in the passage. Jesus has died, and he's been resurrected And he has 40 days to prepare those men. And so verses 2 to 3 that we read a moment ago say that those appearances are proofs. The appearances themselves were proofs. So from the time he was resurrected until his ascension at the end of this passage, that was 40 days, 6 weeks, almost 6 weeks, Jesus is making uh, continual appearances to his disciples. Sometimes we just have the impression that, well, he was raised from the dead, he appeared once, said, I'm victorious over the grave, then he appeared to another crowd, then he was ascended into heaven. Now, over and over and over, he reappeared to the disciples until he was ascended into heaven. And so for 40 days, he taught them. He taught them. Luke 24 says, gives an account of that. When he, after his resurrection, it said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what did Jesus go over with them during those 40 days? Well, according to this, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and on and on. Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Psalms, 40 days. He is going over Bible, Bible knowledge, Bible survey, biblical theology. He is teaching them over and over, explaining the scriptures to them. Why? Because you and I and the disciples cannot be witnesses if we do not know what we are talking about. These are the founders of the worldwide church. These are the founders of First Presbyterian Church, Macon, and every other church that names the name of Christ in the world. So for 40 days, he fills their minds with theology and Bible and ministry skills. When you're hanging upside down on a cross, when you're being persecuted, when you're being embarrassed at a family reunion because of what you believe, you better know the God that you're being persecuted for. 
When you're asked by that classmate or that co-worker or that relative why you believe these things, you better know him personally. You better know him in a vibrant way. And that's what is happening over these 40 days with Jesus and the disciples. Now, why is talking to others about our faith so difficult? I almost never meet a Christian who feels satisfied with where they are in speaking to other people about Christ. Most say, boy, I'd like to talk more often. I'd like to witness more often. Is it because we're all cowards? I don't think so. Is it because we don't care for people? I don't think that's it. I think often to the degree we don't witness, it's because we don't really know God. We don't have a vibrant relationship with him. Unless you have a growing relationship with God through Christ, you will not talk about him. It's a vibrant relationship. I don't know any person who's passionate about something who doesn't talk about it. Sports, football, new car, some movie they love, some restaurant that just opened. So the answer, I think, to being an effective witness is to get to know him in all his glory and in his majesty. Now, most of you don't know this, but I know former President Bill Clinton. I'm going to tell you how it happened, how our relationship started. I was a campus minister at the University of Arkansas long ago in a previous life. To show you how previous it was, I was waiting for a payphone. And there was a man in front of me talking on the phone. And I'm standing behind him, and he turned around, and it's Governor Bill Clinton. And he made eye contact, and I made eye contact, and then he nodded, and then he moved on with one of his handlers over there to the side. So I know Bill Clinton. You want to ask me any personal things about him? I can't tell you, except what I've read. Now, when we talk about being a witness for Christ, if your knowledge of God is as shallow as mine is of what I just described to you, there's nothing to say. And so if someone said, well, tell me about your relationship with God. Well, I, I met him. How? Well, I went to church. You know, I, I heard about it. I, I read a Bible verse. <clears throat> you have to be passionate. You have to have a vibrant, growing relationship with him. And, and we have to feed our faith. To prepare for this sermon, I went back and I read the short story by Flannery O'Connor. There's no connection, don't ask, but I'm going to tell you why. And I read her most famous story, which you'll wonder how, and that is a good man is hard to find, with its shocking ending of Southern Gothic literature. But I, uh, the reason I did that is I had recently read a letter that she wrote out of a book by Ruth Tucker called Walking Away from the Faith. Excellent book. It was written, about, it was, it was written in 2002, so it's, it's 11 years old. And Ruth Tucker has written many books uh, researching um, church history and a variety of things. And in the back of that book is a, are several pages about Flannery O'Connor. And she, of course, died, what, I think at age 39. You know either everything about her or probably nothing about her. I realize that today in talking. But she was a very committed Roman Catholic. And what was interesting is being a person in the academic arena, which is extremely hostile to the faith, typically in most places, to the Christian faith, then she would defend that. And they had a series of letters that she wrote to a friend of hers over a nine-year period 
leading up to the time that this person had decided they no longer believed, they didn't believe in God, they were walking away from it. And Flannery O'Connor wrote a letter to this, this friend of hers that really ought to be on the desk of every parent in this church and every student in this church, where she wrote to the person and said, you really have not walked away from faith because you never developed your faith and said that faith must be developed, it must be strengthened. She was not talking about earning your salvation. She was saying that all of us, even though we're given the gift of faith, the salvation, according to Ephesians, to believe in Christ, once we believe, we're foolish to think that faith is not going to go through ebbs and flows. And so we have to work to strengthen it. We read the Bible, we pray, we apply it, and ask that God will strengthen our faith. We have to feed it in that sense. I think she was dead on in what she's saying in that letter. But if we're to witness for him, not only for our... She's talking about your own walk with Christ. I'm talking about being an effective witness. It will be because we have a vibrant faith. Second point. Mission success depends on clarity. Verses 6 and following. If we don't know what the mission is, we'll not be successful at it. Although he died back in 1993, Bill Peterson was a very well-known football coach at Florida State and for the Houston Oilers. But what's most memorable about Bill Peterson was the way he used the English language. He kind of used it to serve his own purposes. And he made the term athletic scholarship an oxymoron. And he, he would say things that people still reference today. One of his novel expressions to his players was, okay, <clears throat> pair off in groups of three. Now I want you to line up in a circle. And one time he said, I want you to line up alphabetically according to height. Now as the apostles gathered for their final instructions, they needed clarity. What does he want them to do? So in verse 6, they ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They are still thinking that Jesus had come to earth to be an earthly king, to set up a political, earthly kingdom. And in verses 7 and 8, Jesus responds to that. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, and now the key verse here is verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They are still focused on Israel. They're still focused on their nationality as Jews. They are focused on the city of Jerusalem. But Acts is saying it begins in Jerusalem, but it goes to spreads out to Judea and then even to Samaria and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And the gospel is not a gospel exclusively for Jews. It's a gospel that says that the center of God's purpose and activity is the, the fulfilling of the Great Commission. That now the middle wall between Jew and Gentile, as we studied this summer in Ephesians, has been broken down. And the gospel of Christ about the kingdom of God is no longer to be thought of purely in terms of the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem and all the paraphernalia of that religion that accompanied the old covenant. The kingdom is now to go to the ends of the earth. They're still looking for the return of some kind of Solomon-like glory. And Jesus is saying, no, it's the ends of the earth. It's not right here. It's the entire earth, all who have not heard. He's saying my kingdom is spiritual 
and it is international, that his kingdom is not advanced by military or guns or military might, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he promises that the Holy Spirit would empower them to be his witnesses. And they would begin in Jerusalem, which was the national capital, and they would continue in the immediate area of Judea, and then they would radiate out from that center And then they would go to the despised Samaritans and then to the Gentile nations and then to the ends of the earth. Now, when Jesus spoke these words here in Acts 1, verse 8, do you know how many followers he had at that time? About this many. It was about 200 at the most. When these words were spoken, we think his followers were less than 200. But within a matter of weeks, and especially over a few months, the followers numbered in the tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. What happened? Well, the disciples began to understand their role in the Great Commission, but primarily because they were filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Where did Thomas, the one who had doubted, where did he go? He went to India. He took the gospel to India. 200 years, in the, around the year 200, about 100 and, uh, 140 years after the, these words, 150 years or so, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, wrote a treatise called A True Christian. It's still well known today. He's giving a defense of the Christian church. And he's giving to his own people an explanation of what has happened over the previous 150 years since Jesus ascended to heaven. And he says, we are but of yesterday. In other words, we're just brand new. Yet we've filled all places among your cities, your islands, your citadels, your boroughs, your assemblies, your very camps, your tribes of the common people, the councils, the judges, the palace, the judiciaries, the senate. We only leave you to your temples. He says, we are everywhere now. We are everywhere except in your pagan temples. Now, how did that happen? How had the the Christian faith and Christians permeated into the entire culture? It's because they had fulfilled Acts 1-8, that they had been his witnesses. And we often forget, and to the degree that we do, there's a term in the business world called mission drift. We drift away from what we're supposed to be about. We forget why we exist And so we ask around here at this church frequently, among the staff, among the officers, how can we make First Presbyterian Church better? How can we do what we do better? And we'll get feedback like we need more visitor parking or the nursery could use improvement or the classrooms or the buildings or let's get some more decaf or the communion bread could be a little different. It's the wrong question. There's no end to trying to perfect the church. The question ought to be, how do we fulfill the Great Commission? Right here, Macon, Bibb County, and then our role to the ends of the earth. We do it by having a passionate relationship with Christ and being his ambassadors, and it will be costly. The word there in verse 8, you'll be my witnesses, is the Greek word for martyr. It's the same word. You'll be my martyrs. A martyr is someone who bears testimony for another person or a cause with his or her death. The Holy Spirit will empower us even to die as ambassadors. It's costly to be an ambassador. I googled 
American ambassadors who have died in their service, the service of the U.S. since World War II, six since World War II ended, have been killed as ambassadors. John Gordon Maine was an ambassador to Guatemala, and he was killed by a gunman in 1968. Cleo Noel Jr. was an ambassador to the Sudan. He was taken hostage in Khartoum and killed by his kidnappers in 1973. Roger Davies was an ambassador to Cyprus, and he was shot during a demonstration at the embassy in Nicosia in 1974. Francis Malloy Jr. was an ambassador to Lebanon. He was killed by a gunman in Beirut in 1976. Adolf Dubs was an ambassador to Afghanistan was captured and killed during a rescue attempt in 1979, and then almost a year ago, J. Christopher Stevens, who was an ambassador to Libya, was killed in an attack at the mission in Benghazi. Sometimes it's costly to be an ambassador for the U.S. It is always costly to be an ambassador for the Lord Jesus. You know what history tells us happened to these men that heard Jesus speak these words? James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in 44 A.D., he was the first of the twelve to die. Andrew, who was Peter's brother, was crucified upon an X-shaped cross. Philip was crucified in A.D. 54. Bartholomew, who was also known as Nathaniel, was skinned alive and then beheaded near the Caspian Sea. Matthew was killed by a sword in A.D. 60. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome in 64 A.D. Thomas was killed by a spear in Madras, India in 72 A.D. James, the son of Alphaeus, was beaten to death with a club after being crucified and stoned. Jude was crucified. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Matthias, who was Judas's replacement, was stoned and beheaded. Only John, only the disciple John, the son of Zebedee, is believed to have died of natural causes at a very old age. It can be costly to be an ambassador of the U.S. It is always costly to be a witness to Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's so much easier to be obsessed with our own lives, with our own desires, with our own status and our own comfort because it's hard. Last of all, mission success depends on urgency, we see in verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, the disciples see Jesus ascend before them. And Luke is saying this is no fable. It sounds like science fiction, I mean, if you were to just pick this book up and read this, you think, is this a fairy tale? Is this made up? And Luke is saying, this is something they saw. They witnessed it, that he rose up into the sky. I can't explain it. I can't give you a scientific explanation of what took place. Jesus rose into the sky and he disappeared into a cloud. And I would imagine their jaws were open. And they're standing there in amazement, and these two messengers, angels, say, why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? Derek Thomas said the comment by them was to show that's not where we're meant to be. It's not about gazing into heaven. There's work to do. There are churches to be planted. There's a gospel to be preached. There are disciples to be made. It has to go to the ends of the earth. In these last couple of moments, let me give you just three brief observations about the ascension. Why did Jesus ascend into heaven? First of all, it was an explanation to show them that he would not appear again. 
As I mentioned, the scriptures say over 40 days he had made numerous appearances to his disciples. If he had just not returned and they had not seen him leave, they might have continued to think, well, he'll, he'll be back, he'll come back. But because they witnessed the ascension, they knew he is not returning until his ultimate return. Second explanation, it explained in a visible way that in a sense he was being lifted up, he was being promoted, if you will, taking his humanity, his glorified humanity, to the very right hand of the throne of the Father. So the king of glory was entering into a new state of existence. The third explanation is it gave to the disciples and it gives to you and me a glimpse of what is next on the great redemptive calendar, and that will be his return. And what does Scripture say will be evident in his return? Here, here it is in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he comes with clouds. He's going to come back the same way he left. But it says, rather than just a handful of disciples that saw this in Revelation 1-7, it says, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Every eye. Now that is what Charles Wesley was writing about in his hymn, Hell the Day. We sang a paraphrase of it earlier. We're going to close the service now by singing it, uh, four of the stanzas. He wrote ten. We're going to use four of those together after I pray. Father, we thank you for the ascension of Christ to your right hand where he is this very moment. Your scriptures say that he intercedes for us. We pray for any of us here that may, at this moment, not know the gospel, that we would recognize that we have a problem of sin, that we violated your law and our thoughts and our words and our actions, that we need a substitute to take the punishment we deserve, that when Christ hung on the cross, he was the substitute, and you put our sin on him and punished him in place and he, in our place, and he paid for those in full. And through faith now in that, we can have life with you. We have the gift of eternal life. We have the gift of forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.